my friend, Georgia. Keith Anderson. Keith, uh, thank you for being interviewed. You, you perform under the name, or known under the name, Bob Andy. Now, how did that, how did Keith and Bob meet? Keith and Bob came from the very beginning. Who I am at that time did not know how to deal with Keith Anderson as a singer for various reasons. And so I thought if any of this ever came to light, Keith being a failure wouldn't sit well with I. Keith might not have had the fortitude or the confidence to project what he wanted to do then. So a vehicle was prepared for I. Obviously, whatever source that is responsible for my being wants me to do what I'm doing at whatever time I'm doing it. So, based on that memory, that's how Bob Andy came into the picture. Kingston, Jamaica in the 50s, what was it like? How was it when you were growing up there? I was in a daze at the age. 1962 when Jamaica got its independence. I am a 18-year-old boy running around the streets, motherless, fatherless, sick in the head, trying to figure out a way to navigate my circumstances. And so everything about the 50s, 60s are very blurry to me. The 50s and 60s are recorded in my subconscious. And so I would say, I became aware that there was something called sound system. When I was 52, I was eight years old. That is when Queen Elizabeth was coronated queen. 1952, and I saw all the little children coming up the streets with red, white, and blue flags. I did not know what it meant. I only heard that the queen was coronated. I was placed behind a zinc fence with one of my father's girlfriends because my mother had to go to work. And so any given day I could be left with someone else, I could be left locked up in the house. So then, Eight years old, I think I asked, listening to the Rediffusion. Mm -hmm. Rediffusion is the only form of radio we had in Jamaica those days. So it's coming from a Rediffusion as much as far as I can remember. Mm -hmm. And I have for somehow managed to keep abreast of that radio station without knowing I was watching all these things develop. Mm -hmm. And so all the other things running concurrently mm -hmm. in my subconscious. 
were being recorded. So for instance, if I were about to write a song about a, a situation, I would get the inspiration about the situation because I don't, I don't write hit music. I write another kind of music, so people will define it in the long run. Hit music is what the people pay you and turn you into millionaires and superstars. That's hit records. I write a different kind of writing, and I don't put any label on it. So some of them have been huge hits. Yes. So maybe so, 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 you so, may write so, not with that commercial, of course, commercial aim in mind, but that one could argue is the best. It's the most superb to write from whatever the source, and it becomes a hit, goodness me, because you've written hits for all kinds of other artists as well as yourself. No? Well, I've written songs that singers have sung, and some of them have been commercially successful. Still, at eight years old, after I saw those flags being waved around and I went back to my mother's house, again, I don't know time, dates, a year. I just have memories. I moved to a place where there was a sound system. My first exposure to a sound system. On the same street that I could not go outside to see the children with the flags, there was a blue box, Mr. Goody's shop, on the other side of the road, about two, three chains down from where the gate that I was standing. And he used to, there was an amplifier. I didn't know then it was an amplifier. I just know he put something black on, and the sound came through something that I now come to know as speakers. So when I, at age eight, I asked the adults in the, in the yard, I was basically asking, how can an adult hold in the radio if the radio is so small? They didn't know either, because they never knew about the workings of cable and none of us knew. But we got the news from wherever it happened in the world. And so, with that development of consciousness, seeking to find out how I could be listening to a box and to a man and a woman, and how, how did that happen? Because every other female and male voice I'd heard up to then were personal. My development in the 50s to the 60s are very hazy. At six years old, I was exposed to my first hurricane, Hurricane Charlie which devastated Jamaica. And I'm thinking and trying to remind myself, you know, and what happened after that transition from that hurricane? Where did the money come from? I couldn't ask those questions those days, but I can ask them now. You look after your brothers, and your little brothers and sisters, didn't you? And then your mother, she gave you to your grandmother? Your grandmother came and fetched you? That, she, is that, that how that... Well, yes, and when she came and fetched me, I was given to someone else. My mother had to work to sustain herself, and I was in the way. I've come to understand all of this. The first law of nature is self-preservation. So if my mother had to preserve herself the only way she knew how to, and I had to suffer along the way, so be it. She's not responsible. So I'm saying to you now, out of all of that, after Charlie, my mother, it was Friday evening, 
some month in the latter part of the year and Miss Carrie, the late, my mother's landlord, looked up into the sky and the sky was like blood red. And my mother is Daisy and she said, Miss Daisy, hurricane I come. It was the first time I ever heard the word, the word hurricane in my lifetime. I was six years old. 44 and six. No, I was eight years old. Eight years old. Seven years old. You know what is good about this? Dates are what was missing out of my thing. It is just making sense to me. Mm. Going to my grandmother at whatever age, between seven and eight, mm. was another transition I was I had no say in. Yeah. And I was not a part of. However, I survived the tra that transition by stopping in many other parts of Jamaica and, and transited back into Kingston, if there's such a word as transited, back into Kingston mm -hmm. on my own accord, where I rejoined my mother, who the last person she wanted to see at that time was I. She had to make room for me again. And so the transition back to Kingston, led me to go to a school that led me to find a, a children's home next door. That where, home. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Where I sought to gain entry by lying, and I gained entry, and there I met up on a, a piano somewhere along the line. And there I started going to Sunday school with the children. We started going to the cinema together, so I was growing with a family then, but didn't realize then that it was a family. Mm -hmm. And the dynamic of the piano and the uh, effort and, and attempt to develop a talent mm -hmm. started just at that interval there. Well, I wouldn't say interval. That part of the journey, I didn't realize that I was malnutrition. And it's years of tracing rewinding my life state that I was able to find that out. And so I understand why I progressed the way I, I am progressing. A singing group happened at, at that time in the 60s, the Paragons, started with by Tyrone Evans and myself who attended the Kingston Parish Church. I became a member of the, a, a visitor, a goer, to the Kingston Parish Church based on the fact that the home I was fostered to, the son of that family visited. He was a member of the Kingston Parish Church, which is Anglican by religious knowledge. So there was a scout troop at the church and it became a scout. There was a choir and I managed to sneak my way to become an acolyte because I was not confirmed and I went through that out of that came that's where I met Tyrone Evans at the Kingston Parish Church and we started singing together just at that point when we realized that we were going to do it more seriously he said to me Keith there are some mighty strong doors around do you think you want us to challenge those guys they were charmers Alton and Eddie, will be, Alton and Ellis is the one you know from that pairing, mm -hmm. from that coupling. Uh, Keith and Enid, Higgs and Wilson, the Blues Busters from Antigua Bay, and various strong duos. So I said, 
that's a, an observation. What do you suggest? And they said, maybe we need some more members. I said, yeah. But whilst we were at the parish church, banging along on the piano, there was always a group of children hanging around. Just because it's fascinating to see two boys from their rank, no music lesson, no special musical skills, making music. And so we could choose from the bunch. The album that Bianca is now selling was recorded at Drew Priest Sound Studios. But I, I am the producer, but my, as my stable, as they would call it, was Studio One. So Duke Reed was a stable, Coxon was a stable, Mrs. Pottinger was a stable, mm -hmm. Prince Buster was a stable, right. JJ was a stable, Beverly's, who made the hit with Desmond Decker, Israelite, was another stable. So that's how they refer to themselves. We were, we were like racehorses, singing out of a certain stable. And okay. it turned out, as it turned out, we really are work horses. <laughs> uh, reggae is so uniquely, specially, wonderfully Jamaican. So how, how it all began, and to give a give a potted potted idea. How it all began, it was happening before I became a participant. Living at the house, I told you, there was a sound system that was King Edwards, the giant. Four brothers. They were one of the four top sound system in Kingston at that time. I wasn't to know this because I was in the country. Yeah. Okay. So I didn't know. Go whilst I'm not listening to the limited or the variations that are being broadcasted on the radio fusion, mm -hmm. I had the benefit and the privilege of hearing this sound system playing another kind of popular music that I never heard before. Years after I learned that I was listening to people like Laverne Baker, mm -hmm. Louis Jordan. So right at that time, they used to have a steel horn that would place in the tree. And that is how the people would get directions to the dance. Mm -hmm. A big steel horn was placed up in the tree and the, sound, the boxes are spread out over the yard or the house. Mm -hmm. And the steel horn is what beckons the people to the direction and they'd follow that sound. It's pretty much like when I'm living in Westmoreland and the women who attend ply their wares to the markets in Savannah Lamar, which is the capital town of Westmoreland. Mm -hmm. It is said that when Columbus reached there, he said, there is still more land to the west. I don't know what it's called Westmoreland. And I hear of Englishmen by the name Westmoreland, so I don't know what is true. I only tell you what's folklore. Partly, I don't see. I see it as Jamaica music, mm -hmm. simple, with the various idioms for various eras, mm -hmm. and how I saw it through my eyes. Mm -hmm. I am not a journalist. I'm giving you a synopsis from my own mind. And so, the first public music that I was exposed to was. At Christmas time, men dressed in loose, ugly garbs, we wearing masks and playing drums and playing fife. It was called Jan Kono dancing. And there would be a king and a queen or something. It was, and they'd come to the various squares and they'd play. Some children would be running and crying. 
because there would, there would be various insects and animals were represented by masks. And that has a percussive uh, West African rhythm to it. The shake, the bamboo, the this, and the fife, and the drum. And they would dance and play and sing. That happened at Christmas time. So that was my first public exposure to music. The next was the church. You go to the church in the country. If it's one of those spin-off of Catholicism, they have an organ. If it was an Anglican or a Baptist, they would have an organ and a very proper organist. Most times a lady. And uh, yes. And I am music all along those lines in a very subliminal way was taking root in my system because one of the churches I attended was the Salvation Army, which is where, exactly where Jesus Christ was pointed in my mind. That's where that journey, religious journey began subconsciously. There was a, in the Salvation Army they have ranks, captain, lieutenant, etc., etc. A lieutenant, a white lieutenant from Canada came to the pulpit and he played an accordion and sang a song, a Christian song called Almost Persuaded. I was so transfixed that when he left to this day, I know the song, word, every word, I know the melody, and I know how to sing it. I didn't know how to do that then, because everything was still in a haze. You cannot, your brain cannot develop if you are not having nutrition. And so one of the wonders of my life, even in this physical state that I'm in now, I am amazed that I'm sitting here discussing that with you and to whomever your listeners will be. Because these things never seemed important whilst I was growing up. They, these are just things that happened, and I have a way of collecting them and being able to repeat them from memory. So all of that development brought me to wherever I am. But Jamaica music, there's songs that were sung in the time of ska. That were not ska music, that was not ska music. Because ska was basically instrumental oh, okay, for, yeah. for, for a big band. Oh, few, yeah. The best, the few, the few singers that were successful mm -hmm. in that time, mm -hmm. very successful dancer, was Jackie Opel, who came from Barbados, Toots Hibbert's animators, Delroy Wilson. That era also produced one of Tootsie's greatest hits. Tell me, baby, you don't know. That's not a ska song or a, or a reggae song. Or a, it's a Jamaican composition using Jamaican musicians. What bag do you want to lump it in? So when people say roots or dance or, or dub or rock steady or ska, these are just convenient labels. No, in the Jamaica, or, no, 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 no. Just no. to clarify. In the Jamaica, in the, the ignorance that was myself. 
No, I understand. That. I understand that you're you're cl you're classifying it along with how music is being classified throughout the world, yeah. popular music. Yeah, I'm saying the unique thing about the Jamaican, what they call subculture, is mm. that it has a different view, not reflective of the programmed view. So, journalists, doctors of letters, social writers, they frame these things to package it yeah. for the consumers. And to sell in the shops, of course. They, well, they if, a pack, if, if, exactly. if, yeah. if a package is for consumers, not selling, I sell it for us. So, my thing is music. My thing is not no idiom. Because Bob Marley was not the first man who sang what is popularly known now as reggae. He made the most of it. Where is my view? I don't mind having my view contend, but I'm just saying I hold my corner. I stay in my lane. Studio One. Studio One. Clement Cox and Don. He, he was quite a character. Quite a character. Quite a character. A genius, yeah. if I may say so. Because he's one of those children of slaves, and I hear strongly that he's from the Maroons, who has defied the odds. It is not the Syrians or the Chinese, because Jamaica, they say, out of many is one people. So you have peoples becoming a people on paper. Some of the artists you you worked with, recorded with, it's one of the greats, the greats, it's referred to as the Motown of Jamaica. Studio One was a home away from home for many fatherless boys and girls in Kingston who had the dream of becoming a musician in various ways. He was the first African-Jamaican that invested in a sound studio that would accommodate people of his kind, his ethnicity. Clement Dodd's beginning was in sound system. And he started making records just to play on his sound system. Because what they call dance hall which is a, a genre today, started out as a space. So he used to play in these venues. Prince Buster would play in another venue. Machuki the Giant would be playing somewhere. Juki would be playing somewhere. It is the sound system that attracts the most following to their dance that is the champion sound. The sound operates in a similar way today, but it's different format because you have Thousands of, Japan, Japan alone has thousands of sound systems, mm -hmm. not to mention England, etc. So he took that experience to record it music. He had the sound system to supply. And so the, 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 the skill of a sound to a championship is to be able to select the most original recording. Preferably something never heard before. So in those days, you know, when a record is really very premium, they would scratch the, na the name and the label and everything off it. So if it's on his turntable and you come to see, you couldn't recognize a label. So that all this kind of anansi behavior 
evolved over the years. Because Anansi is one of Jamaica's cultural hero, came from Ghana, mm -hmm. Anansi and Tukuma. So we, a lot of our stories, Miss Lou, a great cultural ambassador who is a poet. So when, when it moved to the studio, Coxon started making recordings for his studio. But they needed necessary for his sound system. And so like Sprackett came to Coxon one Saturday to buy a dub of Coxon. A dub is a state of the recording from the tape itself to what they call a soft wax that work out to be a plate of vinyl. Before we understood what vinyl was, we just knew it as wax. Because Jamaica is not a literary society in that sense. As we evolve, we learn things, like I have. Because okay. most of us are not really schooled, especially coming from where I'm not coming. All sound systems operator followed suit. They started building studios. But like I said, if I could play five, six tunes that another sound couldn't find, his dance pack up and come to mind. The people leave that dance and journey to this dance. In that situation, of course you're going to produce more than you can use in recordings, in, in the sound system. So that soft wax I tell you about, that is sold for a hundred pounds. For somebody to come and purchase Bob and the soft wax of going home, Coxon gets a hundred pounds in his pocket. And if he does ten of that on a Saturday morning, because Saturday and weekends are mostly for the dances, the reason I knew from then that I've got to go back home was going to be such a huge success is what happened to me when I was composing the song, what happened when I was recording the song, and months after we were in an actual dance mm -hmm. on the beach in Nine Miles Bull Bay, and I was sitting with Jackie Mitou, one of the greatest musicians in the history of humankind who had helped to produce some of those Studio One songs. And after about four playing of the songs, I said, Jackie, what is that? That was I've got to go back home. And it played 17 times consecutively. And the people held, put hands on shoulders and marched around the dance. One of the greatest moments in my living eyes response to my work in Cox's number one sound system. And what was what was the track? What I have track? got to go back home. That was your first hit? I mean, of many hits? Well, many? let me tell you, a hit in the dance hall is not necessarily a hit through the media. I'm talking about music lovers and fans. I'm not talking about the media piece. How I understand the hit record, Grammys go with it. Remunerations go with it. Promotions go with it. Remember, you're asking me the story from my perspective, you know. So, of course, it should not sound like a story you've heard before. Because you've never had this perspective before. So what you might have heard among, about other things, that's not my perspective on it. That's probably the historian's perspective. Or some music magazine, you're asking me from my perspective. And how it pans out in the broader field. So, that is why they call me a foundation singer. And that would qualify as a root singer because you're coming 
from the dance hall that average people support. Mm. One um, interviewer asked Clement that. I don't know if he asked him about reggae or he asked him about Jamaican music. But his answer was, it's poor people's music. You have a little bit different idea. It's not poor people's music, but it's broke people's music because not having money doesn't make you poor. So I'm qualifying that. But those are the people to which she referred. And it's right on the money. So then, if you are recognized from that era, because it was the first to happen, you're a roots artist. But who says a roots artist can't do something at the trunk, or at the limb, or at the leaves, or at the branches? The fact that you're, as a matter of fact, if you're a root, you're going to grow. And other people are going to grow with you. So maybe one could say a chronix or a protege came in at the fruit end. Because they, they, they're not robbed of what they're being made, of what they're making, because the thing has borne fruit and they're reaping. And so that's what that's what is happening. And the music is of such and the culture of such fortitude that it is feeding musicians all over the world today. No. And they come you're the source, if you like. We are. You are the, the, the so back to the roots, the source. So I just gave you my definition of roots. I treasure those days. So you were eighteen, nineteen? I was 22 when I went to Studio One. When did the Children's Library come in? That was much sooner. It seems like that. I remember libraries, you, uh, one of our discussions, you said the importance of discovering books and the writing and the words and how then that fed in to everything later. When I went to Maxwell Park, I that was the children's could not understand mm-hmm. schoolwork because I entered school at a very at a very advanced age, meaning 14 years old. Mm-hmm. So I would have been placed in a grade based on my age and not my previous academic achievements. But I just wanted to be among children who were going to school because I was not going to school. Mm-hmm. Whatever I was going to learn from school, I just wanted to go to school. So, so I joined, library, I joined the children's library. Yeah, the, children's Ju- library. the junior library. The junior library. At halfway three. And um, I just, I don't know whether I had heard about them, but I chose some simple books. The Hardy Boys, a series of Hardy Boys, which are some stories written in America about a father who is a detective mm-hmm. and his sons and their friends who would play sleuth in certain investigations in the village and all that. Mm. But what the reading was for I, I was confused, and so I could fly away and become these characters when I read, and I found that out. And so then I read Nancy Drew, and uh, who's the lady, the, the opposite to these sleuths. She's a female, younger detective who solves all these mysteries around her community and beyond. And I found those stories fascinated because I was able to become each character. That was what was pleasing to me. And so I was so consumed that I lived those stories because I had to escape from where I was at the time. Bad situation, run away from home, put first, 
tear yourself away from your mother's chores that she gives you. Go to the school and tell the school that you would like to come to school. And the headmistress say, find your birth certificate and you come. I go to school. Once I'm going to the school, I saw somewhere that I would prefer to go home from school to than where I lived. And so I gave myself up to my sweet children's home. The mercy of the wind. Another chapter started there. Being told at one point that you cannot stay in this home any longer because you're not an orphan. So I went to the courts and the courts questioned me about my desire to go back home. I said no, I wasn't ready to go back home. I asked me why, I told him why. And he said, well, this child will become a ward of the state. And so I became a ward of the state. The matron of the home that accepted me in the home that night when I went and told her that my mother had died put in the offer to foster me. So from thence, I became her foster child. I left from the children's home to the annexed area of the same estate where the matron's quarters was located and started living there with her and her children. So it was in that house that there was an old piano sitting. Songbook, which came out in 72, is... I believe, still one of the biggest sellers in the catalogue? I never knew I had done 12 songs at Studio One because right. they were recorded over a four, three, four year span. Okay. And after Young Gifford and Black, he called me and he said, mm. we've compiled an album. Okay. My photograph is on the back of the album mm -hmm. because he told me to get photograph to him. The picture is clothing I bought in London. When I went, he said to me, Jackson, because he called everyone Jackson, Jackson, the album is going to go out without a picture of you because I've been telling you I have. And then I took this little picture to him. He said, well, we have enough time to squeeze it on the back. And he said to me, you know why you don't want this album to go out? Why you didn't give me the picture? I said, no. He said, he didn't think the songs were good enough. I never had the approval or the self-esteem to think that anything I did could have been that good. I never. Well, one of your biggest hits was interpreting Nina Simone's Young, Gifted and Black. There we are with Marcy Griffiths. So, well, and that, that's... that's I mean, what that, does that it, mean it's, it's all then? What it meant to you now? What it means to you? Well, 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 my first hit record in Jamaica was also a cover. Those songs you're talking about with the sound system, they never were number one. Or they weren't chart records mm -hmm. in Kingston. What was the other song? Games People Play. Games People Play became my, which is a cover, mm -hmm. became my biggest um, single hit. Mm -hmm. Young Gifted and Black was a cover, mm -hmm. which gave Marcy and me a biggest hit. But huge uh, here uh, in uh, Britain uh, also. So the thing is, it travelled. That did, did maybe the other Games People Play was a huge huge but somehow Young Gifted and Black really travelled or hit a nerve I mean what did it hugely important it was the right song at the right time thanks to Tony Blackburn who did the Good Morning One show the early show Tony Blackburn from the BBC mm -hmm. he had a system where every week he would select a record of the week and he had the most popular program and Young Gifted and Black was selected as a Tony Blackburn special of the week right. okay. and so once he started playing it, the other jacks just picked up, and the rest is history. Mm -hmm. So it's, 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 it's almost like 
there was more, more ego being able to cover a song that was already covered and it became a hit. The interesting thing about games people play, they had the rhythm sitting there for a long while. And these are some Lebanese or in Jamaica we just call them Arabs or Syrians who own this recording studio. Federal record. And Marcus Garvey Drive. And um and um I did the song. They told him they had the song waiting. Somebody told them, these lyrics for that song, you want to find Bob Andy to sing it. And they never stopped until they located me. Because games people play, although a cover, was like things that I had written before in that vein, social consciousness. So, no, that and that gave me another perspective now. When I got my first formal statement from Federal Records, I got oh. 750 pounds. In those days, wow. I, I was confused. So in terms of you making a good living out of your work, Federal Records were the people. Not too long ago, I learned that all those Motown great artists were on salaries. Salaries. Oh, were they? Of course. Must be like only like Michael Jackson and Stevie Wonder, and but all the four tops, the Temptations, they were in Motown's employ. They did their agency, their grooming, their producing, everything. So the other singers you worked with and create, you wrote. Them. Well, I wrote some the twelve songs on Studio One that I said Stuart yeah. that Coxman mm -hmm. in his vision mm -hmm. compiled, and had a great. In those days, liner notes were akin to the substance in the music. Great liner note, where the guy Bonnie Goodison, who also owned a sound system, wrote the liner notes for that album. I, I, like I said, I never started out saying I was doing an album. I was just recording. And when I left Studio One, Coxon decided to compile the recordings and gave another singer the name Andy because he says he has to have an Andy in his ah, business. Okay. So they are oh, a part so of my, yeah, share my name. You're a linchpin. Horace Andy. You Horace. know Horace Andy. Yeah. Okay. He's, not a, he's not even Anderson. So So you moved to Trojan? After games people played. Marcy Griffiths had a friend called Harry Johnson, who had a band called the Checkmates, and she was the vocalist for the Checkmates. And she knew him while she was at Coxon. And whilst we, went to Harry J. How did we get to Harry J? We got to Harry J because after games people play, Marcia Griffiths and her family, I became a member of that family then. I started living in Washington Gardens. One evening, Harry J drove by and asked me to come and cover a song. Two other people in Jamaica had covered the songs and he called me to cover the song. And I extended the invitation to Marcia. We went to Dynamic Sounds. Harry Johnson had the track, the musical track for the song in particular. Marcia and myself were there. He played the song. We recognized the song. Norris Ware of a group called the Jamaicans was there at the time. Mm -hmm. And Judy Mowat. So all four of us did the vocals in Young, Gifted and Black. I did the arrangements of the vocal aspects of it that turned out to be Young, Griffith and Black. That is where, so as fate would have it, 
I could have done a clean suit of clothing and gone off with Harry J to do the recording. But I invited myself. And two other people were there. I didn't know this was going to be a success. I don't know why I invited her. And so that was the beginning of the Harry J phase. Where I produced Delroy Wilson. I produced a group called Time, which became further became Chalice. I produced various single artists. In the in, in one his career had waned. I produced a song, a single for Delroy Wilson called The Last Thing on My Mind, which became a number one, a Tom Paxton song. I nearly I got some very evil thoughts when the record sold number one. But because I had used Harry J's facilities, but I had paid the musicians myself. Ask you about Rastafarianism. When because earlier on in the interview we were, we were talking about the churches and the choir. When I, I have a correction for you. Rastas part of Rastafarian defiance is against ism. So it's never Rastaism. So, because we have a spiritual and religious cultural experience with Rastafari, we call it Rastology. So, my earliest exposure to Rastafari was through my mother. The most consistent thing about my mother and her cousin, Miss Smith, who was my nemesis, who made herself my nemesis, they were always going to different churches because they all wanted what I am pursuing, eternal life. And so they went from church to church to church to church. And then she took me to a Rastafarian church in Trenchtown. The most humble church I've ever gone to and have been to cathedrals since. There wasn't even money for seating. Bits of wood, Posts were placed into the ground and they nailed pieces of board on these stumps to make them seats. The building might have been thatched, I don't know, I remember. But what I remember is they used to turn to the east and there's a poem or a song called Ethiopia, the land of our fathers, the land where all gods love to be. I've never seen or heard that in a church setting before. And the person who was reading the scriptures wasn't reading or preaching to anyone. He would, the brother would read a verse in the Bible and the preacher would say, what you say, brother? And he'd read it again and say, you hear what the brother says, the Bible says? And the meaning of the word had to become clear before they left that verse. So everyone left the meeting with some kind of idea about what the Bible was saying. And they chose many of the verses in the Bible that are in Genesis. Because Ethiopia as a place might very well be mentioned in the scriptures more than any other place. Because the land of Havilah in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Ethiopia is one of the places where the four rivers run throughout the earth according to the scriptures. So they put their emphasis on the Ethiopian aspect of the scriptures. You have to understand a little bit about the teachings of His Majesty, of Marcus Garvey, and the various 
philosophers that came out of Rastafari. So the Rastafari influence gave us for our national ego, the Rastafarians were linked just like the people of the Commonwealth. The Queen is their head. For the first time we saw a black king and a black empress. So we didn't need to look to England and their monarchy any further. Because if they were our brothers and sisters, they couldn't enslave us. So on that basis, Rastafari rejected and discarded everything that was British and started looking Ethiopia-wise. And that is a synopsis again of beginning of a cultural and spiritual philosophy that is unchallenged. Only one of its kind in the Western Hemisphere was evolved to a people who did not have a language because of slavery. And without a language, rejected the language that was forced on them. And so years later, you performed on Africa Unite, the documentary which records the Marley family's celebration of Bob Marley's 60th birthday in Ethiopia. That was in 2005. So this is fast forwarding now. And how is that since the first time you've been to Ethiopia? Yes, I never went to Africa before. Right. And a friend came by. Mm -hmm. She used to run a vinyl store and sell headgears. She said, Bob, I'm going to I'm going to Kenya, where my husband is from. I'm going to visit their parents. Mm -hmm. It's very cheap. Would you like to go? I said, yes. And something happened to me when I landed in Nairobi. A weird feeling, but a sense of pride that I was stepping on grounds that my family, many, 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 many ancestors ago might have walked on. And the vastness of the land and whilst we were there, we heard about the event that would take place in Ethiopia. Bought me a visa at the Ethiopian embassy, flew to Ethiopia, and became a part of that whole experience. Mm -hmm. To Sashamani, to, to Nazareth, and forward to Ethiopia, Addis Ababa. And um, the Bob Marley concert, the United concert, was in a place called Maskell Square. Over a half a million people. I've never seen a crowd that big in my life. Bob Marley is one of our great Virgin and heroes. And, but he was just the tip of an iceberg, tip of the mountain. He just was catapulted to the highest peak because of all those who didn't get to go there. It's a small nation. We have to unleash our weapons spaces apart as they take us down. We're a cultural superpower. Rewinding back to Trojan and, and Master Griffiths, a long partnership. Uh, On and off, yes, because we both had solo careers to pursue. Mm. And she spent a whole generation tour with Bob Marley and the I3. So mm. in the different times of our lives, we got together and do mm -hmm. things. But most of those came after Young Gifford and Black, and most of them happened here in the UK. Right. Pied Piper was all recorded here. It was all here. Yeah. 
because that I was going to ask. So here you came to London. Was it in the seventies you yes, first yes, came? Yes, yes. And you came in uh, Labrick Grove. You came. No, where, no, where no, did you no. Come? Where did you come to? We we just we, we just got taken to these places as new yeah. visitors to, to okay. England. But we lived in the east. We lived in um out um. Lewisham. We lived in Lewisham. So we used to drive from Lewisham in an old escort given to us by Trojan Records to, to go to Neesden, 10 Neesden Lane. I think there's a fire station there now. Mm-hmm. That's where Trojan was headquartered, was located. It was a building that housed a part of Island Records, yeah. storage and distribution, and Trojan as a promotion company. Because they were part of Island, right? Or involved with they were like um, partnership. No, I don't yeah. get that. I get yeah. that they were tenants first, oh, okay. and then they had mutual interest. That okay. is how my recollection yeah. of it is. Okay. And um, Trojan would provide us with a road manager. Mm-hmm. So the, the promoters. This was the first. It was Palmer Records. The, rec- the, rec- the, the, the record became Young, Gifted and Black became a hit. Right. And so we were requested to perform Top of the Pops on the BBC in 1970. Mm-hmm. And spring of 1970, we performed Young, Gifted and Black. And you only perform if you're in the top ten. And the song stood at number three for a long time mm-hmm. because the Beatles had just disbanded and they wanted, and their song, find myself in time, let it be, stay at number one for endless. And I understood why. Mm-hmm. But we, our hit came, Youngest from Black became a hit in the time of Elton John's. He was just starting out. Holy Moses, I have been removed. I have seen the specter, he has been here too. The first thing I remember about Elton John. So when Young Gifted and Black had the chart toppers in this country started doing the continent, we were traveling with Elton John, Gilbert O'Sullivan, The Brotherhood of Man, Claudia Rogers, top stars. And uh, when we came back to London, we started doing the British tour, Scotland, all the countries of that side. And then Europe. We came back from Europe first. Yes, we, had, we represented the song on the various top of the pops in Germany, yeah. Belgium, okay. Holland. Because I remember the place, first place we landed when we left England was a place called Ostend. And we did the filming of that chart on a boat, cold as ice. And uh, then, actually, of course, there was pirate radio. Oh, yes. What, what, what so memories of pirate, pirate radio? Ra- pirate radio helped one like me because they mostly paid root stuff. So, so right across the board, right. I am an underground artist, mm. really, who was always waiting. A lot of times I traveled throughout England, those people would always say, we were expecting to get bigger than Bob Marley before Bob Marley. What happened? So the music industry has greatly evolved over the years. Have you got any particular views or anything to say about that? One, <clears throat> one aspect that I quite admire mm-hmm. is that an ordinary person, be it male or female, can start a project 
in the back room and become a success mm. on the internet. At the other end, it's a very, very much an occupational hazard for artists. Because you, you, what actually, what motivated your move to set up the Caribbean Copyright no, I didn't. Association? That, that was me. That, that was, was not that, that, I, because of my, not because I knew anything much about copyright, mm. but because I found out what it meant yeah. okay. to the artist. The I advocated it, mm. and advocate, and so when they formed the Caribbean Copyright Organization, they had me as its chairman. Right. I was also president of the Songwriters Guild before that. But I was nowhere as eloquent as I am now. Well, the Jamaican government conferred on you an order of distinction. So, I mean, how does it feel actually to be a cultural ambassador for your homeland? Well, I don't know if they, they consider me a cultural ambassador. I'm an ambassador in Jamaica too, more than anywhere else. My feelings about awards, governments are always last. The people make you that first. So that's my response to awards. If it weren't for the people who insist upon me, who they think and know that I am, mm -hmm. government wouldn't be interested. Do you have any words of wisdom for young people coming into the music industry? What, what my, my words for young people, it's not just for music industry, young people, period. Mm -hmm. The first order of life is self-preservation. And then you have to know what you preserve. Get to know yourself. And it, perhaps getting to know yourself, you might find an assignment and it would suit you to carry out that assignment, mm. whatever it may be. Do you have any favorite, particularly favorite poets? To clarify my mind, I read a book or an article here or there. Mm -hmm. There was a small stage of my life when I could say I was, could be termed and the lesser side, an avid reader, Khalil Gibran. Mm, Khalil Gibran, yeah. And another writer that has fascinated me is a writer called Carlos Castaneda, mm -hmm. who wrote about the Yaqui Indians of New Mexico. Mm -hmm. This study he did in doing his thesis on the peyote and other green desert plants psychotropic desert plants that mm. the Yaki Indians mm. use to fly, to change direction without leaving where they are. Mm. Could be sitting in the market and in, could be in the market dancing and he's still in his personal spot in the corner of a house. Yeah. And you mentioned to me in an earlier conversation uh, Carl Jung. You read yes, Carl well, when Jung, I became, when I, when, when I, just when, after, I've been confused about my life. Not yeah, my life and my my space in the scheme of things. I'm a wanderer, and um, I was saying to you the other day that I consider my, myself mercur mercurial, which means I'm all over the place. But then I realized that the essence of mercury, it stays still when it finds equilibrium. It's not in the fact that it flits from here to there and up and but the fact that it is searching for equilibrium would view myself, my nature, in that context. So if you could go anywhere in time for one day, where would you go then and why? 
Well, I've never thought about anything like that. No. No. You haven't dreamed. Of no, it. not at all. You don't that. I really, I, 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 really, I really want to journey the stars and the planets. Because anywhere on earth I go, I'm, I'm, I'm going to see rich and poor, starving, murder, rape, dispossession of land. Is there one particular thing you'd like people to associate with you, your name, your work, your life, your more than any other? And what is it? That's, no, that's up to them. Oh, it's up to them. Yes. I mean, let's say I was a person who would die. I wouldn't give a damn what they think about when I've died. It wouldn't matter, would it? Mm -hmm. Or I don't know. Mm -hmm. But no, I don't think in those terms. Mm -hmm. Just remember me as a guy who writes some songs and sings some songs. Because essentially that's what it is. Mm -hmm. And I have some good friends and we have talks like these. And do you have a motto? I wouldn't say it's a motto, but I was watching a program with Whoopi Goldberg. That Whoopi Goldberg was on the panel. And I asked her about religion. And she said, you know, for me, it's very simple. Do unto others mm. as you would have them do unto you. That's enough for me. Two final questions. There's a lovely quote about confidence. Marcus Garvey, what is that? Without place? confidence, one is twice defeated in the road of life. Mm -hmm. With confidence, one wins before one starts. With confidence, one is twice defeated in the race of life. With confidence, you win before you start. There's a Marcus Garvey quote I read somewhere. No other nationalities or people can claim the injustice meted out to the Africans. And it's still true today. Thank you.